to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm your host, Pauline Fromer. I'm so glad that you're here with me today. And we're going to be discussing two of the most appealing places you could potentially go this summer or in the coming months. Our second guest will talk about Iceland, which, yes, is open to American travelers. Our first guest is, though, going to give a historic perspective on a place that's a bit closer to home. I'm speaking about the state of Oregon. Our first guest is Tony Perrote. He's a wonderful author who wrote a, a really fascinating, surprisingly moving article about Oregon. It's called The End of the Trail, a Vintage Guidebook Inspires a Quirky Trip Through Oregon from a Wilderness Lodge to a Gilded Age Saloon to a Town Hidden Underground. And this is in the Smithsonian. Welcome back, Tony, to the Travel Show. Oh, hey, thanks for having me. Well, it's a delight. And I love the fact that in this, uh, you followed an, an outdated guidebook uh, to, to have this adventure. Now, usually when a guidebook it's is written, it's written because the place it's written about is a place that many, many people want to go to. You'd be crazy as a publisher to publish something to a place very few people were going to. But that wasn't the case with this Oregon guidebook, was it? No, it was uh, it was kind of the opposite. Oh, well, maybe the government was crazy, but uh, <laughs> du during the Great Depression, um, there were so many writers, and uh, well, everyone was out of work. And yes. the works, the WPA, the Works Progress Administration, was started by um, uh, FDR. And one of the things that they decided to do is they were hiring artists to do murals all over America, and they were building roads and doing all this other stuff. But they decided to get um, writers to do the first detailed guidebooks, one to each state. And so they hired like 6,500 writers to basically wow. scour the United States. You know, Including going, some of the biggest names in literature. They had John Steinbeck and Zora Neale Hurston and other people who went on to, to write the American canon. Yeah, no, every, everyone needed a little, uh, a little work at that stage. And, so, <laughs> yeah. uh, and they're often uncredited. You know, there's, the mm. editor gets, gets the name. But uh, they, were, they were kind of like the tomb, some of the extreme detail. And it's sort of like uh, it reminds me of uh, in ancient Rome, you know, uh, Augustus sent out Map, you know, map makers and uh, to measure the, the Roman Empire. It was a little wow. bit like that. A lot of these Interesting. places. Yeah. I mean, it, it was like in the 1930s, we sort of forget that there were parts of the United States that were extremely little known. And yeah. so um, when I started thinking about Oregon, I was like, I had known this series and I thought, wow, uh, you know, in the 1930s, people just weren't really going there. And yeah. so it, it was kind of like a, a groundbreaking uh, project. Right. Well, you, you say in the article, and I never had thought of it this way, but in 1913, so a bit before this guidebook was written, but not long, they, there were only 25 miles worth of paved roads in Oregon. It was very much a deep wilderness area until the 1930s. Is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah. It was a real frontier. And uh, I mean, that was you know, it, it, it used that image, you know, because it was like logging, there was mining, there was sort of fishing, all these, you know, this, this, this sort of great you know, use of resources. Everyone knew that it was, a, you know, a wild place. But that was, for most people, that's a good reason to avoid it. Uh, it was like, <laughs> but in the, in, in, as fashions changed, the, the, the tourism industry started to grow there. And exactly the same things were what 
would lure Americans, you know, from New York City or from uh, Los Angeles. Everyone's craving the great outdoors. Yeah. And Oregon, of course, has this in, in spades. So, uh, so the same things that, that they were using, they're exploiting nature through the you know, early 1900s. And then suddenly they just they sort of pivot and they decide, actually, you know, come and uh, we've got all these amazing wide open spaces. Come and enjoy them. Right. Well, what I love about this is that, that partially uh, this guidebook was written on the behest of the American government because they realized at the time, and I'm going to tip my hat here, hand here, they realized that tourism was part of the infrastructure, that it could be very important in terms of not just giving these authors jobs, but in bringing tourists and therefore business and money to a state that wasn't getting any, like yeah. like Oregon, or getting yeah. very little. No, totally. Um, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, it's an economic engine, as well as um, for the mental health of Americans to go, yes. you know, like to go hiking and to go get, you know, get out of the uh, uh, the urban experience for, you know, just for, uh, it's, it's part of um, Americans' birthright. Right. Well, you start the article with what sounds like a glorious hike. Uh, tell a little bit about the I guess it was called the, I forget the name of the inn that you go to at the beginning of the article. It's, a, I yeah. want to go there. I'm so it, jealous of you. It, it's, called, <laughs> it's called the Minam River Lodge. It's not the catcher's name, but the Minam, M-I-N-A-M River Lodge. And uh, I'd heard about it you know, uh, from people in Oregon. It's, it's not well known outside of Oregon at all. But the famous thing is you, you have to hike in. And it's, yeah. you know, like a, it's quite a serious, serious hike. Even when you and find no the And no Wi-Fi. Trailhead. So you, you had to write down all the directions. I know. It was very retro it was as if I was in 1930. <laughs> and it was, uh, it's, it's really funny that it is slightly disconcerting driving along. And like the, the radio reception on the car starts to just dwindle. And then uh, wow. the phones, you know, the bars just go. And it's like, oh, wow. You know, uh, you don't, there's not that many places that it's like that these days. Right. And, so, and, and then you're hiking in and you're going like, geez, I, I, you know, I'm glad I printed out the instructions because the, the signposting is very, uh, is loose. And so uh, they, they, they haven't lost anyone yet, but someone once went down the wrong road, uh, I think. And they got, uh, you know, they made it. They made it that day. But uh, uh, it's, it's kind of easy to get to, to go astray. But it's right. this beautiful hike. You go down, you know, like two thousand feet into this beautiful valley, and there's a. It, it was on the side of an old um, uh, hunting lodge down there. They've rebuilt this uh, this extraordinary place. Uh, very, very charming. The great thing about it is they're they're really into their food. So it's one of the yes. great food and wine destinations of Oregon. So it manages to combine all these sorts of things, and you get in there, and it's like I remember I, I walked in, and there was some guy who looked like a lumberjack out of a you know, Jack London story, and he's like. Oh yes, we've got quail tonight. You'll be pleased to hear. And, like, okay. and then he's like That's- recommending the organic Sauvignon Blanc, and it's like, okay, all right. Oh. Wow. Yeah, that that's kind of Oregon wrapped up with a bow tie on it because they they all look like either lumberjacks or hikers. I found whenever I go to right. Portland, everybody looks like they're about to go out and hit the trails, which they many are since it's such a gloriously beautiful state. You also went to a ta- a town called Joseph, which had a fascinating, surprising history. Can you tell a little bit about Joseph? Yeah, no, it's, it's in the, the very heart of the Wallawa Mountains, which are in eastern Oregon, it's a, you know, which is where the Minamon River Lodge is. And it's, sort of, it's this extraordinary 
uh, wilderness area that's very little known outside of Oregon, but it's huge. And it's got like 60 peaks above 5,000 feet, also, you know, all sorts of amazing sort of things. And Joseph is this tiny little town there, right by the glorious Wallawa Lake, uh, which is one of another of the great gems. And mm. uh, sort of a frontier town now, it still has that sort of vibe. But it used to be the heartland of the Nez Perce uh, Indian. You know, world, I guess. You know, that was where that was their their tribal lands, their summer lands. Uh, for winter, they would go down to the lowlands. But it's this extraordinary place. It's very magical. And uh, I one love of the, the gr- fact you you kind of sum it up when you say you you see a cowboy riding into town, getting off his horse and ordering a latte. Yes, that's the um, <laughs> <laughs> it's probably a soy latte as well. I mean, it's very oh my uh, goodness. You know, it's. Uh, uh, that's Oregon, you know. It's kind of like there's no real reason to drink bad coffee in Oregon, you know. It's, like, uh, <laughs> yeah. but it's, it's sort of that, and and it is kind of a, has a Wild West feel on the outside. But there's a, you know, the Jennings Hotel there, which wasn't, you know, a really. It used to be like a brothel. It used to be, you know, this saloon, and now it's this very elegant, very designery um, hotel that uh, was all, you know, funded by a, a Kickstarter program, you know, a few years ago, and it was they were able to save it. It's this lovely place to stay. Uh, but you can use that as a base to explore around, do hiking and um, you know uh, canoeing and all, this, all these wonderful things. And for me, the great the great thing of interest was the Nez Perce history because Joseph, mm. Chief Joseph, was the um, the great leader of the Nez Perce. Uh, and there were like there was one treaty after the next the, the American government had made, and they and they broke it one after the next. Oh. So he finally was, he was just like we're getting out of here, you know, we're just going to go. Because uh, they were trying to put them on reservations and like, you know change their culture, and so with um, s- several hundred followers, men, women, and children, he just sort of set off. And the U.S. Army tried, you know, tried to catch them, and they went on this extraordinary eleven um, hundred mile trek across the West, with wow. you know, outwitting the, the the army at every turn. They went through Yellowstone, you know, and then they were stopped really quite tragically, like forty miles from the Canadian border, and then all mm. shipped off to a reservation. But um, but my interest was that um, uh, the Nez Perce would start to come back for these sort of Wild West shows that they used to have in the town. They were all sort of run by the, the local, you know, White Chamber of Commerce or whatever. And it was, kind right. of, it was, it was sort of a, a bit of a – it was becoming a bit of a disaster. And then the logging industry died. And then they came up with the idea of giving some land back to the Nez Perce uh, and like giving a sort of like a homeland, and, and, you know, mm-hmm. it was the homeland project. And right. so – and the Nez Perce started putting on um, powwows and they started putting on uh, – dinners where they would invite the local uh, you know, uh, characters around and suddenly it, it's this sort of wonderful story of reconciliation that, that now mm. everyone's you know all this this, this awful history um well yeah because it, i mean the town was named joseph and he actually went back there at the end of his life and begged for some land to live on and he was turned away yeah. and yet now his people have have are working with the community to to create this experience of Native American culture for visitors, and also outdoorsy culture. I mean, it's not just Native American stuff. No, uh, no. But, but the Native they, they get involved in like um, the restoration of the salmon. You know, they're mm. bringing them back, and the locals are like, "This is awesome." You know, like, you know, not only can you come back, and when can we start fishing? You know, and it's. Uh, and and hopefully they'll start to get into um, forestry as well because uh, the fires there are just as everyone knows it's completely yeah. every every summer are out of control and the Native Americans are like uh, you know we've been running it you know, like know how to manage the forest right. and, and, uh, and let us do this we'll do controlled burns yeah exactly exactly yeah. Yeah. Well, 
I think Oregon was on people's radars a lot this summer uh, because of the Black Lives Matter protests there. Right. And you go deeply into the troubling history of Oregon. I had no idea. You, you think of it as a Western state where you know it, it didn't have slavery, but but tell a little bit about the history and then then about the city of Maxville and and what they're doing with that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Oregon does have a very liberal reputation. I mean, Portland sure. is very sort of uh, you know, avant-garde. Portlandia, anyone who's seen Portlandia knows that it's right. liberal to a fault. <laughs> yes. um, but the state was basically founded. Yeah, there was no, not going to be any slavery, but we're also not going to have any black people. Yeah. It's kind of like uh, this extraordinary thing where uh, any uh, African American who was still in the you know stayed in the state for longer than six months was allowed to be lashed, and yeah. uh, it never it was apparently never enforced. But uh, it was just extremely uh, African Americans were extremely unwelcome, and right. uh, and there were very few. And the great exception to this was the most bizarre story was in the uh, late twenties, early thirties. A logging company invited all these, you know, set up a camp up called Maxville up in the Wallawa Mountains. And uh, they brought in uh, African American loggers from Arkansas and from all over the South. And mm. so the, it, to sort of help out because they were like right. expert loggers. And uh, initially it was meant to be sort of a segregated uh, community, but that just doesn't work in these remote parts of Oregon. You can't you right. know, stay separate from, you know, you're trying to survive the winter, you're trying to survive the fires. You're snowed in for like months, you know, and it's like someone, you know, has an accident. You've all got to work mm. together to help get that person out, you know, to, right. to medical care. Uh, so, you know, saving each other's lives. So it became a very sort of like cooperative place and everyone's like hanging out together and the photographs of like black and white kids, you know, playing together, which is a little kind of like science fiction in um, the rest of Oregon. Back in those and, days, yeah. Yeah, yeah and the clan, clan leader even came, you know, the clan, you know, rode up there to sort of, uh, you know, to tell them that, that they should go away, they, they should end this. And the foreman just like pulled the mask, you know, the, the hat off the, uh, huh? clan, the, the clan guy and said, like, uh, this, is, this is business, forget it. We're, you know, this is, you know, we're, wow. we're carrying on. So, uh, so it was this extraordinary story that, again, you know, in the early 30s, that finally the, the, the logging camp was closed down. And in those days, they used to basically put, lay down a, a train track bring in the, 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 you know, the housing, put it down, and when they wanted to get rid of it, they'd put it back on the train and get it out of there and then tear <laughs> up the train tracks. So it's kind of this extraordinary industrial thing. But um, it, so it, it closed down and it was largely forgotten. But um, uh, one, of the, one of the guys uh, you know, was, was living there and uh, his daughter, Gwen Trice, uh, grew up you know, with sort of vaguely, you know, she didn't really know the history and she went away and she came back. And then um, – and as people started telling her about her dad, how he'd been a logger up there, and she was like, "What?" And then she started mm. researching and interviewing people, finding photographs, uh, and going up there and sort of seeing the site now. And so she is sort of leading. She sort of did a documentary about it, and so the story has sort of come out again. So on the main huh. street of Joseph, she runs a sort of a little museum that tells people about it. They're reclaiming the land so that she can set up, uh, you know, rebuild some of the buildings there, which were sort of in storage, uh, so that you know young, you know, African American kids can go out there and sort of camp out there, and like, and so the story becomes better known. So it's yeah. another, it's another great story of like the past, you know, this, this sort of kind of weirdly hopeful and optimistic. Absolutely, story, yes, you know, uh, yes, coming from the past, and like rescuing the present because. You know, there's logging's gone. There's like it's, it's you know it's, mm. it's kind of a depressed sort of 
area. And so suddenly, like, oh wow, we can we can do this. We can, you know, uh, and she's some some of the Native American guys are coming in to help. You know, there's a lake there that's sort of all clogged up that they're going to help to sort of like revive. It's just. Um, it's kind of an inspiring, you know, yeah. hopeful note. Well, it's 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 an inspiring, hopeful article. It's once again, it's called "The End of the Trail." And Tony, what part of Oregon is it in? Would you say that that you went to? What what quadrant of the state? If that's uh, it, a way to put it. They generally just call it Eastern Oregon because um, you, know, you, you basically head east from Portland, like 220, 220 miles, and you sort of you know you go over the mountains, and then there's the sort of it's more like there's the plains and then you sort of go up the Wallowa Mountains are sort of there. So yeah, they just call it Eastern Oregon. Eastern uh, Oregon. But still not many people go, but it, it just from your descriptions and and from the article, which is once again in the Smithsonian, it just sounds like a paradise. And, oh, that's pretty and, fun. But not just a, a, a fascinating paradise, not just a place where you lie in the sun. It, it just sounds wonderful. Oh, great. Uh, well, well, thank you so much, Tony, for inspiring us here on the Fromer Travel Show. Really appreciate it. Oh, thank you for having me. Countries are opening up, and one of the first to do so has been Iceland. With that in mind, I have Egil Bjarnason on the phone. He wrote a terrific book called How Iceland Changed the World. Welcome to the Fromer Travel Show, Eagle. Hi, thank you for having me. So, first of all, I guess you are. Have you seen any tourists there? Are, are Americans coming now? Yes, particularly Americans. They they have they, the vaccinated Americans are arriving in in, in planes. Finally, they've been a novelty for the past couple of years. But I, I I'm here in Husavik, the northern town, famous for whale watching, and I've been passing a few of them uh, at the harbor, and uh, I. It's it's good it's good to see them again. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. Yes, absolutely. So, how did what what inspired you to write this book? I I've always wanted to tell the history of Iceland. The, the history of Iceland is unlike other European nations. It's something that can be told almost from day one. Iceland was the last major territory to be settled in in the northern hemisphere around 1200 years ago. And that overlapped with the arrival of the written word. So that the the stories about these early settlers they exist, and hmm. I I've I've been tempted by by that fact that it's a a bit of a natural story that goes from 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 day one to the present time. But I never had much of an angle to tell that story, and not until I really joined the. Associated Press as a freelance reporter covering Iceland. And there wasn't really anyone doing that for the AP at the time. So one of the first questions my editor asked me was whether there were any Icelanders in the AP obituary archive. Hmm. Uh, For those who don't know, the AP, like many other big news organizations, they have a big archive of pre-written obituaries about people who are still alive. But who did notable things and will eventually get an obituary. Exactly. And these can be, you know, famous people, people who, who are in power, and, but also people who have done something that have a very precise, put a very precise mark on history, hmm. like inventing something or, yeah. or, or inventing a famous slogan or inventing the cassette or been the subject of a famous photograph or 
or been behind a, a political event that turned the turned the tables. Sure. So you did a, an obituary of Iceland, but it, that makes it sound very grim. But instead, this book is very joyous and filled with fascinating facts. You, you kind of write the book and you take some of the most interesting um, events that happened in Icelandic history and you tailor the tales you tell about the, the this country uh, around that, right? Yeah, I that that particular task because I've always enjoyed these ob- obituaries about people who are maybe less known. I approached it with a lot of enthusiasm and began thinking about Iceland from that perspective of ha- how have we put some mark on the world history. And yes. with that, I wanted to tell the history of Iceland from day one, so to speak. So Right. It was a way into it. And uh, that's how I began kind of thinking about the book. Yes. There were no natives living in Iceland when the Norwegians arrived and decided to settle there. And so, in a way, it's the only country in Europe that can fully know its heritage. Is that fair to say? Yes. When the first settlers came, there was there were birds and there was the Arctic fox and some <laughs> some evidence suggests there was walrus, and that may have been the what drove people here first was a, a drive to hunt walrus and and trade their bones. But there were no there were no people. But really, kind of after a century into the settlement, the, the entire coastline was habited. And uh, you have these incredible sagas that every Icelandic schoolchild uh, learns, and the uh, and Iceland or Icelandic is ancient Norse. So you also are important uh, in terms of the Norwegians knowing their past better. Is that fair to say? I think that's fair to say. I'm not sure if someone listening in Norway will shake their head, but <laughs> <laughs> I I think so. The history of Northern Europe, you know, of all these kings that ruled in Scandinavia, we wouldn't know much about them if Icelanders had not written down their stories. And they wrote it down in a language that can still be understood. You know, they, we, mm-hmm. at the time of settlement, everyone in this Scandinavian region, they kind of spoke the same language, but the Icelandic language didn't change because the country is isolated. So we are still able to read these original texts about right. about this. Yeah. And you, you pick out such such interesting facts. Like I, I wrote down when the first settlers got there, the way they claimed land was they would light a fire and then they would walk. And at the end of the day, when the sun set, they would light another fire. So they could only claim land that they could walk in a day. So you didn't have massive landowners. And that led to a fairly egalitarian society until Christianity came in, right? Yes, that, absolutely. It, 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 it's an interesting method because, you know, it, it, when you're, you're a settler society, you know, what do you do with those who arrive after everything else has been settled? So there's a, there was a scarcity problem for sure. And at the time of when people believed in the the Norse gods, the, the the Norse mythology, it was the power dynamics were a lot different because no one really could, no one could collect money 
as a as a church or or an authority. So that kind of all changed with the arrival of Christianity. Yeah. And then, and we should say why. I I mean, I'm not, I don't want to sound anti-Christian. It's because uh, tithing came in, right? Can you explain how that worked and changed the dynamics? Yeah. So to explain that, I think we have to just paint the picture of how Iceland was ruled at the time. It was ruled by by big men, by, by 36 big men who didn't really have no one none of them had authority over the entire country they had the legislature at the, at the, which would meet every every year to kind of decide what law what, what codes of law there would be in the country but none of them was an authority over the entire country but once once a, a tax code was implemented with christianity the that meant that those who owned churches they started they were able. They were able to to collect money from from the general population, and that made power a lot more fluid. And they could, with that money, buy up bigger and bigger properties. And eventually, the country was ruled by just a few clans, and that resulted in a, our bloodiest civil war and the only really war that Iceland has experienced. Yeah, well, that that also was really surprising to me that Iceland has never had a standing army, uh, that this is not something you've needed, even though the rest of Scandinavia has had bloody war after bloody war. You never had to have this type of resource, right? We have always seen the biggest, greatest defense of being just a distant island and always hoped that people would leave us alone. That hasn't always worked out, as I mentioned in the chapter on the Second World War. Sure, sure. Yeah. So cutting forward a little bit, the Icelanders were the very first people to settle or to at least touch foot in other places. I'm talking North America and Greenland. Greenland in particular was a very mysterious subject. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. Greenland is a mysterious subject because no one really knows what happened to the Icelandic or Norsemen that settled Greenland at the time of medieval times it, until the 1400s. They they lived there for around 400 years, but then their settlement just vanished, and we have still the the. the this the topic is still being debated how and why they all kind of disappeared yeah yeah no that was an absolutely fascinating part of the book and you you have a bunch of different explanations for that okay another claim in how iceland changed the world is it was partially responsible for the french revolution how could that be <laughs> the, so this claim this is the claim that most Icelanders know. You know, when I went mm. into this work, this is something that, you know, you, you've heard once in a while, to, you know, tour guides, they tell this to tourists when they point to the, a big lava in southern Iceland from a volcano that erupted in, in, six years before the French Revolution. And that well, massive volcanic eruption changed the climate in Europe and it caused massive droughts, not just in Europe, also in, in Northern Africa 
And, and Japan. And Japan. Yeah, but changed the they monsoon. Had- it, it, it was really an, 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 an incredible natural disaster that I was really surprised by, you know, when I studied it, because I didn't really realize the impact of it all. But I don't think we can take entirely take the credit for the French Revolution and the birth of modern democracy. But we definitely, we may have speeded things up for the end of the monarchy because they, they, they were overthrown because people had, the, the people of France had enjoyed kind of a, a good lifestyle, but then it kind of eroded very fast with that. And it had terrible uh, consequences in Iceland itself, too, right? Absolutely devastating consequences. We lost, we lost about uh, a quarter of the population Oof. and eighty percent of the livestock. And the, the people who died, they didn't die from volcanic poisoning, or you know, they didn't. They no one really was hit by the lava or anything like that. They all died from to starvation. Yeah. Well, another way that Iceland seems to have changed the world is in women's rights. And though you take pains in the books to say that, you know, equality is not fully equal yet in Iceland, you're still way ahead of many other places in the world, uh, particularly in leadership. And I, I want you to say this because it's a, it's a fine point you have to make. There were women leaders before your president. There was Golda Meir, of course, and Benazir Bhutto and others. Uh, but she she changed the rubric, right? Yes. And I think for Iceland, gender equality is something that Iceland has gained such enormous soft powers over. You know, I, people look to Iceland and give, it, give Iceland credit for gender policy is that it didn't necessarily invent, but because it's, it's, it's proven to be this success model, it has far bigger powers on the global states than it ever has. And I think that that, that began with the election of our first female president and the first democratically elected female head of state in the world. Name. Right, in world oh, history. In world history, yes. It's, you see, her name is Vigdis Finnbogadóttir, and she was elected president in 1980. Mm. And I, I, I kind of traced that the Iceland's rev, gender revolution to her and also to a famous strike that the Icelandic women's movement made in 1975 when 90% of women, they... They laid down their work, whether it was at home or in the, at schools or at, at at airports. They just kind of they they all went downtown and then they 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 rallied while the men had to answer the phones or, or cancel, <laughs> cancel flights. Uh, right. And it was a massively successful strike. Uh, that, well, incredible! Ninety uh, percent of the women uh, participated. That's that's just extraordinary. It is. It is. And uh, and and uh, if you speak to to women who were alive at that time, uh, they all have their own story about where they what they were doing that day. It was a, a day that that meant a lot to to women at the time, and changed yeah, men's perspective about what women do, uh, uh, about all the work they do at home, and about the work they. They did at the workforce at the time. Yeah. 
No, it, it was it's a it's a very moving and uh, inspiring story. Well, thank you so much, Eagle, for appearing on the Fromer Travel Show. Thank you so much for having me. I don't know about you, but that makes me really, really want to go to Iceland and to Oregon. They both sound terrific. And these are a a wonderful book, How Iceland Changed the World, and a wonderful article in the Smithsonian Magazine. So get them both. Get your Fromer guidebooks. Visit us at Fromers.com. You know, if you are going to be going out on the road, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It's going to be a bumpy road back. There are going to be challenges for travelers, but it's going to taste so sweet to be out there again. And we are trying to cover everything at Fromers.com right now. I mean, we're covering the debut of new airlines. Two new airlines are going to be flying and they have great introductory rates, which will make budgeting a little bit easier to certain parts of the world. We're covering that. We're covering new protocols surrounding travel. We're covering developments at destinations that are going to make them interesting to visit. We're covering the fact that all Nippon Airways (laughs) has created a lavatory door that you never have to touch. (laughs) That just seemed like such a Japanese development. Bless them. It's, It's something that I know has grossed a lot of people out for decades. Why has it taken us so long to come up with this solution? Thank you, Japan. You have come up with the solution to a problem. Uh, that was a real problem that I think we started focusing on a lot more because of the pandemic and because of surfaces. But anyway. So this is all a long way of saying, we hope you'll visit us at Fromers.com. We hope even more that you'll subscribe to our newsletter, which is free. And let me say to those of you who are traveling, may I wish you a very hearty bon voyage. See you next week. Watching K.